And this is the second day of this December 2019 two-day session. And we'll pick up from where we left off. Uh, from the Zen Kitchen to Enlightenment, Refining Your Life um, by Dogen and Uchiyama. So whenever, um, once in a while, someone will ask me uh, what it was like uh, working in the kitchen. And I always say the same thing, which is it was the best training I've had at the center uh, since I started. And there are so many reasons why that um, applies uh, to my training. But uh, the one that comes out the most is that being a head cook, it forced me, anyway, to get out of my shell and to work uh, with others, along with others, uh, and give them feedback and work through conflicts and deal with the day-to-day -day pressure of getting a meal out at 12.30 every day. Didn't always happen. And that was fine too when it didn't come out on time every once in a while. That's okay. It's, it's the state of your mind that you get into uh, can get kind of crazy sometimes uh, because we are so punctual at the center with everything, pretty much the work meetings and the sittings. Um, so there is there that expectation. Plus, you know, people are hungry at 1230. Um, but um, it's really the state of your mind, how one reacts to uh, those kind of mistakes or disappointments. That was, that was really... Um, such a teaching. It was uh, it was so humbling to see how I would overreact, uh, maybe in that or in some other. Um, uh, say someone made a comment about the food and and to see what goes on inside, to, to be the observer and to see. And I wasn't always skillful when when something like that would happen, uh, but as time went on through the zazen through. The, the months and years of doing zazen every day, it did uh, help me establish a little more, or a lot more at times, this mind of equanimity and not overreact uh, with all the obstacles and problems and troubleshooting uh, that may occur at the center. In fact, sometimes the troubleshooting would actually be, um, would actually be enjoyable because if you get into this, what, what Uchiyama and, and what Dogen talks about in Instructions to the Zen Cook, to just apply yourself wholeheartedly to the task at hand, then it becomes really enjoyable. No matter how much, um, no matter how difficult the task may be, or how little time you have left to get uh, the soup out on the table, if you just apply yourself wholeheartedly, and at the same time ask, ask from from one or other, like being able to ask for help when needed. Uh, that can be of, of great benefit uh, to yourself, to oneself, and to the people you're working with. It really is a, a team effort. Um, at the same time, it is 
um, the, another great teaching I had was uh, about becoming a head cook was um, having to use my authority when needed uh, without being uh, rigid or and this is the feedback that I talked about at the beginning of this with um, being able to give people feedback uh, uh, and to entrust that the person can accept the feedback and may not accept it right away or uh, may resent it, but to trust in who you're working with to, to, uh, for them to, to take it wholeheartedly as well. And it doesn't always work, of course. Um, there was, there's a lot at the same time in the kitchen. There's a lot of coming and goings, you know, people are here for shorter or longer periods of time. Uh, every once in a while, I'll see someone who came for training for a while and they worked in the kitchen and they'll mention something and they'll, they'll see by my reaction that, uh, I don't remember them, uh, working in the kitchen and they might feel hurt by that. Um, <laughs> But it occurred to me, it says, and I tell this to people sometimes, it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, I tell them, you know, if I don't remember you working in the kitchen, that's a good thing. It means that you weren't a troublemaker. Um, you didn't cause a lot of chaos in the kitchen because that can happen too at times. All right, well, that's my two cents worth about uh, working in the kitchen. But, of course, we'll talk much more about this um, Related to that, there's a section here um, at the beginning that I forgot to mention uh, or, or that I wanted to to highlight. So this is Uchiyama speaking. The head cook must be present, paying careful attention to the rice and soup while they are cooking. This is true whether the head cook does the work by herself or has assistance helping her either with the cooking or the tending of the fires. Even though in the larger monasteries recently people have been placed in charge of cooking the soup or the rice, the head cook should not forget that these people are assistants working under her and cannot be held responsible for this work. In olden times, the Tenzo was completely in charge. There were no such assistants. I remember one of the things that my predecessors told me um, when I was starting and struggling is she said to me, this is your kitchen. And I kind of had a real aversion to that initially. Uh, I'm, what do you mean this is my kitchen? This is everybody's kitchen. We, we're all working in this together. And it's true, we are the people working in the kitchen and in other departments. We're all in this together. But at the same time, and this is something I had to learn the hard way, is um, you, one does have to, when one is in that kind of um, role as a supervisor, you really have to do take uh, your work under your own hands, under your own guidance, and give guidance to others uh, in a supervisory role without being attached to that, without being uh, feeling a sense of pride, and and uh, it's that that's the humbling experience of of. Uh, being in a role of responsibility and realizing your own shortcomings and just like uh, it's just like our daily zazen uh, in and out of sashin by seeing and observing the way we react to given situations um, it's by the observing and seeing and the noticing 
and not reacting, just getting back to the practice, that slowly but surely those kinds of um, defilements really are, are, are negative reactions. It's those things start to soften after a while, but it's the perseverance of, of doing the daily practice. Uh, and then those things do change, but uh, like I've said so many times, it, it does take time, and sometimes we don't even notice it, and then the next thing you know, you, a year later, you're like, you realize, oh, well, wait a minute. A person making a comment about the food, they didn't piss me off nearly as much as they used to, or, um, or not at all. And then you just take it like, oh, okay, so I had an off day, uh, that's okay. And just get back to the task at hand. Uh, the thing about working in a, uh, the kitchen or any other position of, of responsibility, although we are talking about the kitchen, is um, by committing oneself to one's job and, and really, yeah, it just basically comes down to commitment. Uh, there is this... Uh, by saying, I'm just going to do this job, even if I don't want to do it, even if I have huge resistance, uh, I'm going to do this job. And there is, there is a freedom in that, in that commitment. Uh, Roshi wrote this great article called The Freedom of No Choice. And it's something that we hand out to all people who come to the center uh, for training, for, uh, whether it's for a short amount of time or, or longer. And it's just that. It's if you don't have a choice, you have to come to all of the sit-ins. You have to follow the schedules. Um, you have to get the meal out on time. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of liberation from that, that you don't have the choice. Yeah, it, it, it can force you to stop wandering in your thoughts of resistance. I mean, you don't have a choice. You just have to do it. You have to get it out. Next chapter is called On Parental Mind. In the previous discussion, I talked about big mind, whereby everything we encounter inevitably becomes our life as soon as we throw out our ordinary way of viewing things. Usually, we set up a world in opposition to ourself and then go, this is self with a small s here, uh, our usual, just our normal understanding of, of self. Usually, we set up a world in opposition to ourself and, the, and then go about trying to pocket for ourselves as much wealth, power, or happiness from that world as we can. When our way of life accords with the Buddha Dharma, we no longer construct a world in opposition to what we think of as our, quote, self. Rather, we see that the whole world is the true self, capital S here, the true self. This path is the way of the Dharma. Since there is no longer an other to be dependent upon, we have neither a need to be swayed by someone or something we think exists outside ourselves, nor do we long for things that we project as being apart from ourselves.
it does remind me again, it's bringing back these memories. Uh, when I started, I think it was the first work retreat, I was kind of taking the reins to, to, to be the, the head cook for the work retreat here at Chapin Mill. So once a year, we do have this work retreat um, that are four days, Tuesday through Saturday, and there are a lot more people that come. It's one of our most um, popular events. Uh, so there's a lot of food that needs to be cooked. So at the time, I was very green as the head cook, and I, my predecessor, Donna Dia, she was there to help me out. Um, but at the time, um, I wasn't quite ready to take on that responsibility, and I was also going through a bit of a personal crisis. So I just wasn't, let's just say, I just wasn't on my game at all. And it was this this other uh, that U Uchiyama is talking about. Since there's no longer an other, well, the, for me there was an other. There was I was I was expecting others to do the work because I was just in such emotional turmoil at the at the at, you know with with my own personal problems and and also just wanting Donna and, and others uh, to just kind of do the work while I was just freaking out internally and. And all right, so I was having problems. I was struggling with that, but uh, but still, you know, had I just thrown myself into the task of of whatever I was doing wholeheartedly, and still experienced this turmoil that was gone inside, I think things would have been a little smoother for for especially for others because it does really affect for others. And so that particular work retreat was such a, a humbling teaching for me. Uh, when I realized how um, how much it affected myself and how especially how it affected others, and I still remember sitting on the front steps of the retreat center and and um, Donna sat next to me, and the first thing she said was happy birthday i 'd completely forgotten it was the day of my birthday, uh, and we talked a little bit and but then she said she just asked me point blank, "Do you want to run the kitchen?" I can't remember what I said. I'm sure it was yes, but but uh, it wasn't a wholehearted yes. Uh, but it was that feedback that she gave me. I think that was the last really, really helpful teaching that she gave me as my predecessor. Um, in the Sutta Nipata, there is a passage which says, not to rely on others is to be unmoved. Here's where we find true peace of mind. When Shakyamuni became fully enlightened, he is rep reputed to have said, I attain the way simultaneously with the whole world and all sentient beings. Everything, mountains, rivers, trees, grasses, all attained Buddhahood. The following similar passage is from the Lotus Sutra. The three worlds are mine, and all sentient beings in them are my children. I'll just quickly define, there's a footnote for three worlds. But as soon as I read this to you, just forget about it, because it is, is it surprised me. Three worlds. This is a translation of the expression sangge. These worlds consist of the world of desires, both physical and emotional, 
the world inclusive of forms but without attachment to them, and the world without form or attachment. There you have it. In other words, so I'll just repeat that. The three worlds are mind and all sentient beings in them are my children. In other words, big mind as awareness that the whole world is one's true self is the foundation of the Buddha Dharma. Sawaki Roshi used to use the expression, live the self, this is capital S, live the self that fills the whole universe. When we see the words universe or world or all sentient beings, we are apt to think that this means we should meditate on our awareness expanding in some large space in the way a balloon expands when filled with air. But that is not what the Roshi meant. Life must take the form of living activity. And the instruction to the cook teaches us that the self inclusive of the whole world is nothing other than the very things, people, or situation that we presently encounter and know and helps us to discover our lives through these things and, in turn, pour our all, pour all our life ardor back into them. And this is a quote from, from Instructions of the Cook. Once he has these ingredients, he must handle them as carefully as if they were his own eyes. And another, another statement, another sentence from, from Instruction to the Cook. Both day and night allow all things to come into and reside within our mind. Excuse me. Both day and night allow all things to come into and reside within your mind. Allow your mind and all things to function together as a whole. Big mind, then, is not a matter of meditating on some vast floating spatial dimension. Rather, it is the practice of entirely devoting your life to each and everything that you encounter, no matter what it might be. This past summer, a certain university professor came to stay here at Anteji. Now, as long as one stays here, whether he is a college professor or the president of some large company, he is just a practitioner like everyone else. This fellow refused to work alongside everyone else, and when everyone was working in the garden or chopping wood, he would be off reading a book somewhere. He claimed he was not any good at doing physical labor and said reading would be his work. And I explained to him in no uncertain terms that we do not call reading work. We grow an eggplant or make a piece of firewood with the physical labor of our bodies. Reading does not help plants grow, nor does it get the wood chopped up, nor does it get the, the food out on the table. Uh, that's one of the things, the many, many things that I miss from working in the kitchen is the, the pure physicality of it. Yes, it was exhausting work, but to be moving around and working on this, this living dharma of cooking, uh, tr trying as much as possible to work on one's practice while moving around in the kitchen. It was just such a, uh, a great teaching. And uh, there is one particular sashin that I'll never forget. It wasn't the sashin itself, but it was after sashin. It was, uh, the, you know, I had a regular 
crew, kitchen crew of, I think we were at least three or four people. And there was just something about uh, the effort that we put into that sashin where when we came out of it, um, we barely talked for the whole week. We were just doing the task at hand wholeheartedly, each and every single one of us. There might have been the occasional conversation, yes, but I clearly remember how efficient and well-run the kitchen worked. It's like, and I had hoped I could slip this in because it, I find it just so inspiring. Almost every single sashin, after a 70 sashin, we have this, this brunch or this breakfast we have, or post-sashin breakfast, uh, at, back at Arnold Park, the city center, on Sundays. And so, of course, we have to get the food ready um, to have this breakfast. And so um, we work from 8 to 9 in the morning just before breakfast. And invariably, almost every single time, everything just runs so smoothly. And as the head cook, I would stand there uh, in the back of the kitchen by the altar. And, uh, I mean, it's just a lot of delegating, especially at the end. And I would just stand there and just watch 9 to 15 of these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas moving around effortlessly. Um, There still might be a little bit of a conversation, but it's just like... um, It's like a flowing river. They just move around uh, one another, and there's hardly any kind of friction or... They're they're working no-mindedly. They have they've reaped the the benefit of their efforts from this sashin, and and it's just it's such an inspiration to see. Okay, so back to this professor. He finally wound up choosing the easiest task he could find sweeping the leaves along the temple path and gathering them into a big pile to burn. I happened to pass by the place he chose to burn them, and sure enough, he had picked out a spot directly under the camellia hedge. The flowers were being scorched brown by the heat and smoke. I had him put out the fire out immediately, but here was a fellow who, while the fire was burning right under his nose, could not even see where the heat and smoke were going. How can you assign work to a person like this? I can just imagine all the intellectual professors like him who are unable to cope with the challenge and sharper wits of today's college students. So there is nothing particularly wrong. Uh, again, we in Zen, we, we always, at least I do, I'm, I get away from wrong and right. It's just kind of a such a dualistic way of, of seeing the world. Um, there's not particularly anything wrong or bad or being, being or uh, unfit about being a professor, uh, but to live the life of an intellect, to live the life in the world of thought, that can that has that where that has. Um, what am I trying to say? Let's just say it's not the <laughs> the most. Um, let me put it this way: there is nothing wrong with reading. Like I enjoy reading just as much as anybody else. 
But if it really becomes a compulsive thing where we're relying on our worldview, this life of thought uh, out of literature or nonfiction or whatever one's endeavors might be, if there isn't, there, if there isn't a, a, a practice like Zazen, um, then we just get caught into this world of delusion. We're... Ah, need I say anything more? It's just we get caught in this world of delusion if we rely on books. If we rely entirely on books. Zen is often thought to be a state of mind in which you become one with your surroundings. There is an expression which says that mind and environment are one. Enlightenment is understood as falling Enlightenment is understood as falling entranced into some rapturous state of mind in which ex- external phenomena become one with oneself. However, if such a state of mind were the spirit of Zen, then one would have to still one's body in order to achieve it and never move. In order to do that, a person would have to have a considerable amount of spare time with no worries about where the next meal was coming from. What this would mean, in effect, is that Zen would have no connection with people who have to devote most of their time and energies just to making a living. All right, so he's he's talking about, yes, of course, there is this experience uh, that every single one of us can have, that can have, uh, this is spiritual awakening, and it does occur for the most part through zazen. But zazen is such a there is such a broader meaning and understanding of of zazen, which is our day to day activity of moving zazen. And I am going to read something from the the translator here about that, which speaks to exactly that point. It goes without saying that the central practice of a person practicing Buddhism is Zazen. However, the reader should not get the idea that here I am comparing Zazen with the rest of our day-to-day activities. To do so would be to fall into the trap that many practitioners fall into of clinging to the idea that practicing Zazen is most important. Therefore, one should practice it 24 hours a day. The error here is in taking literally the idea of Zazen being the most important activity in our life as opposed to all our other activities. So again, just to stress, it's the clinging to the idea. Yes, of course, Zazen is important. Uh, we need to do Zazen. If we can, do it on a daily basis. It's, it's so grounding and helps us uh, interact um, more mindfully uh, and with 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 more concentration throughout our day to data activities that it helps us to do this um, moving zazen. On the other hand, there is another trap that people can and often do fall into, and that is the one of thinking that we must practice zazen in all of our day-to-day activities. Note the word thinking that we must. The obvious next step in this way of thinking 
All right, so this is where he's talking about the trap here. The obvious next step in th- in thinking in this way is to equate, equate all of one's activities with Zazen. That is, everything one does is Zazen, eating, sleeping, drinking, being. The practical problem in this way of thinking is that all too often people simply wind up doing less and less Zazen, deluding themselves into believing that since all their activities are Zazen, there is no need to sit and face the wall and do Zazen. In other words, to state that Zazen has a definite and particular form and to cling to that position leads to one kind of trouble. While stating that Zazen has no particular form sends one off in another confused direction. Notice that he doesn't say this or that. He doesn't box us into how much Zazen we need to do or he, he's basically, um, de- deconstructing our ideas about Zazen, what Zazen is. Each, each, each person needs to, um, a lot, for a lot of people, it just comes down to how much time they, they can spare to do Zazen. Uh, even if it's just five, ten minutes on some days. Um, yeah, it just basically comes down to time and time commitment. And each one of us need to define that balance, uh, but to not get stuck in our conceived ideas of, of what Zazen ultimately is and what uh, our moving Zazen is. There is no logical resolution to this problem, and it is this illogical paradox with which a true practitioner of Zen must sit, both literally and spiritually. Zazen is true... Zazen as true religion can hardly be considered the hobby of rich and leisurely people. The wonderful point of Dogen Zanji's practice of Zazen is that it is religion which must function concretely in one's daily life. He taught through the office of the head cook, which he felt to be indispensable in a Buddhist community and which requires physical work because he felt that Zazen as religion must never be relegated only to those seeking to indulge in some rapturous state of mind. The expression, quote, mind and environment are one, quote, is accurate, but it does not mean getting lost in a state of drunken ecstasy. Rather, it means to put all your energy into your work, that is also the meaning of shikan. Yes, this drunken ecstasy. It reminds me of a book um, that I skimmed through once called After the Laundry. No, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. To handle them with equal... I just skipped the paragraph, which I can. I will to handle them with equal to handle them with equal care and awareness is very important. In other words, when you work with some tool or utensil, you should put it back when you are finished with it, and not just leave it sitting around. When you put a pot down roughly, bang it around on concrete or a tiled sink, it cries out in pain. If you 
if you still are unable to hear that cry, then you can hardly be said to be a person living out Zazen in your daily life. This will be mindful of things. It reminds me of this great story Roshi t- told me a few times and others. Um, so Roshi Kaplow, um, of course, had some brother monks and friends from Japan. He had one of these teachers come. And this teacher was helping us uh, train on the, the instruments. And one of the instruments is the mokugyo, the, the fish drum here that we use to follow the beat. So there was young Peter, uh, now known as Roshi, Ponen Roshi, um, I think working on the mokugyo, and Roshi Kaplow there and this Japanese teacher giving instruction. And it was either uh, Peter or some someone else on the mokugyo was just beating the, the, the heck out of, of uh, the mokugyo. And all the teacher did once the, the student finished his, uh, his um, playing of the instrument just went right over to the mokugyo, went right up to it, patted, gently patted, and said, poor mokugyo, poor mokugyo. Of course, this applies not only to utensils and things, it applies equally to situations and people. A person can hardly be said to have a religious attitude who treats a teacup carefully, almost piously, simply because it is expensive, yet who feels nothing in treating people roughly. We should always strive to treat objects, affairs, and particularly people with good care. When we begin to see that our every encounter constitutes our lives, or to put it another way, as we begin to understand the deeper ramifications of big mind in our lives, this mind or attitude naturally begins to function as the mind of a parent in regard to everything we meet. Roshan, this word Roshan. Roshan is a mind or attitude of a parent. In the same way that a parent cares for an only child, keep the three treasures in your mind. A parent, irrespective of poverty or difficult circumstances, loves and raise a child with care. How deep is love like this? Only a parent can understand it. A parent protects the children from the cold and shades them from the hot sun with no concern for his or her own welfare, personal welfare. Only a person in whom this mind has arisen can understand it, and only one in whom this attitude has become second nature can fully realize it. This is the ultimate in being a parent. In this same manner, when you handle water, rice, or anything else, you must have the affectionate and caring concern of a parent raising a child. It is this that I'm talking about yesterday when I clumsily tried to explain how inadequate inadequate I would feel at times when looking back as head cook of, can I really honestly say that day after day, every day, I had that mind, I had that manner of handling water, rice, or anything else, you must have the affectionate and caring concern of a parent raising a child. In the kitchen, we make a lot of soy cheese. 
Uh, it's we have it for every single sashim, and we also serve it for the workshop. So this this um, after making so much soy cheese in the workshop, I remember just one time just being so fed up of making it, you know, and tasting it that I told one of my co- co-workers, uh, I, I can't remember, I made some kind of sarcastic m- remark about it. And uh, there's a saying that goes around uh, at the center, you know, uh, they, they come for the Dharma, but they stay for the food. And uh, so that person switched it to, uh, they, sarcastically, obviously, they come for the Dharma and they stay for the soy cheese. So that was it. Was it was fun to to uh, it was a humorous moment in the kitchen, but I also realized that um, no matter how many times you make something, if you if you receive the ingredients with the care that Dogen is uh, subscribing, expecting the head cook to receive. Then, then every day is a good day. Every every soy cheese is a good soy cheese. And so it doesn't matter how many times we make it. You just do the work. A good part of the reason people treat things roughly and are hard on others is because they are thinking only of what is beneficial to themselves or else because they dislike putting all their energies into their work. Prefabricated houses going up everywhere in Japan today look fine for a couple of years, but then they begin to look like chicken coops. The realtors who build them are thinking only of their own profit. They have no trace of feeling for viewing their work as a parent sees his child. I can't help but remark on all the care and attention that went into building Shape and Mill. Uh, we've, this building has been here for now at least 20 years. Countless, countless, countless meetings I heard in arguments and disagreements, but, but really it was, it was the, the people organizing and committing themselves to those meetings and hashing it out and figuring things out. All that attention to detail, all that, that, Countless meetings. I, I, I mean, I was just showed up at the center, so obviously I wasn't involved in those meetings at all. But I heard, I heard some, some of the disagreements sometimes, or not the particular details. But, but my point being, there was so much attention and care taking, and then, and and then for people to sacrifice uh, some time off to come and build. We, the, one of the decisions that they made early on was that at least for phase one, the front end of the building, is that the Sangha was going to build as much as possible to, to, so it's, it becomes a real community effort. And it was such a gratifying experience to actually be involved uh, with the person running it uh, and to come out here. Yes, the work was exhausting. It was kind of like it was actually good, occurred to me, a good training for me uh, for later on down the road as head cook, just that pure uh, physical exhaustion at the end of the day and then having to just get back from driving out to Chapin Mill, helping out here, going back, having a quick dinner, taking a hot shower, and then zazen. And doing that day after day, um, 
it really it had a way of really kind of helping me along the path, just really slowly but surely just polishing and polishing and polishing. Then, too, there is that grandiose expression of Japanese bureaucrats. The state is our boss. Those civil servants who work in the government receive their monthly salaries without fail. They get their bonuses. And if they were served for a long enough time, they receive retirement grants plus monthly pensions! Since they have no feeling of urgency concerning where their next meal is coming from, they grow completely sodden with little desire to serve the people who come to them with their problems. They do their work sticking to the book and collect their paychecks. Perhaps I am prejudiced because I have never worked at a job with a fixed income. During my adult life, I have lived from day to day going out on takahatsu. That's the mendicant begging that monks do. With a constant sense of urgency doing this takahatsu. So when I come across bureaucrats and the kind of bureaucratic attitude that prevails in this country, I get very annoyed. If these public officials truly felt their lives were worth something, they would naturally see their work as their child, quote, in quotation marks, forget about their personal inconvenience and endeavor to help those who come to them. I have felt this way for some time, and if you, the reader, just happen to be a public official, not not like this uh, that I have been describing, then that, of course, is quite fine. In fact, everyone hopes there might be more officials who are conscientious about their work, devoting the whole of life's ardor to all the circumstances and people we encounter in our lives in the same way we devote ourselves to our own children is precisely how we shall find the true meaning of life. Even in loving a child, I do not mean that we should continually pander to its every whim. Living with a parental mind also means to be prudent and aware of the child's real needs, lest we stifle the child with blind love. The instructions to the cook teaches us in detail about the active functioning of this kind of mind or attitude. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.